0: Hello and welcome to the special bonus episode of Little Things with Amber Alby Swenson. Today you're going to hear chapter one of my brand new book. To request your copy of Soul Care, Nurturing Your Spiritual Wellness, give to our $155,000 challenge grant. Your gift will go twice as far. Give today by visiting us at timeofgrace.org or writing us at P.O. Box 301, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53201. Here's chapter one. Self-care versus soul care. The internet, workplaces, and even our friends love to tell us all about self-care. Breathe. Go outside. Plant something. Listen to a podcast. Workplaces like mine put simple self-care reminders in our mailboxes. One encouraged, drink some water. Do a short mindfulness breathing exercise. Write down three nice things about yourself. Step outside for some fresh air. Find a video of cute animals online. Listen to a song that makes you smile. Self-care, quote, is everything you do to tend to your physical and emotional health in the ways you are best able to do so, unquote. That last phrase is the caveat, and it's what makes the self-help world incredibly confusing. After going through dozens of lists, I found oxymorons at every turn. Indulge! Mindfully in moderation, relax, be lazy, get up and exercise, zone out, scroll mindlessly, limit your screen time, fuel your body, make your favorite comfort food, celebrate, be okay saying, no, I want to be alone, declutter, clutter leads to higher cortisol levels and more stress, but if decluttering stresses you out, don't worry about it get your finances under control, but splurge on a massage, buy a cookie from the bakery, treat yourself to a candle from the boutique, and anything that makes you happy. The world is always trying to point us to the path of happiness. Our wants, dreams, and desires are of utmost importance and priority. Why then do we need so many lists? Why are we still unfulfilled, looking for more? Self-care even by the definition above, misses an important aspect if it is solely focused on this life and our wants and whims. It neglects the soul and spiritual wellness. If only for this life, at best, it offers a periphery suggestion to be mindful, to meditate, and to practice gratitude. But how can you find lasting peace and joy and rest apart from God? I don't want to downplay taking care of yourself, so please don't misunderstand me because God definitely wants us to take care of our bodies. He wants us to eat well and get rest so we are energized for the day ahead. He wants us to have ways to cope with our anxiety or deal with our frustration or anger. He wants us to be aware of caring for ourselves so we can care and serve others. That is so important because how can you do the kingdom work God has for you if you aren't taking care of yourself? And how can you focus on your faith, family, or relationships if you aren't doing some sort of self-care to nurture your mind and body? But in this book, when I speak about self-care, I'm talking about the kind of self-care that is so focused on self and happiness now that it keeps you from prioritizing your faith. Please think of self-care in that lens as you read this book. Self-care God's way is necessary and good. Self-care the world's way is not. And the best kind of self-care is soul care. Soul care prioritizes your relationship with God. Self-care, the I deserve this kind, embraces indulging and in focusing exclusively on you. Caring for your soul requires you to submit to God's will in ways. Self-care focuses on making this life the best that's possible and preserving it at all costs. Soul care reminds you this world is not your home and encourages you to live as a citizen of heaven because your body will die and decay, but your soul is eternal. I want to refer to a section from the Gospel of Mark, but first I want to tell you about the man, also known as John Mark, who authored the book. John Mark's ministry start was a failure— we're told he deserted the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. That's in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometime later, Barnabas wanted to give him another shot, but Paul wasn't having it. It caused such a rift that Paul and Barnabas went separate ways. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul did mission work with a man named Silas. Later, Mark joined forces with the Apostle Peter, who referred to Mark as his son. 1 Peter 5, verse 13. It's commonly recognized that Mark's gospel is an account of Peter's time with Jesus. At some point, the Apostle Paul came around too. In Colossians 4.10, 2 Timothy 4.11, and again in Philemon 23 and 24, Paul mentions Mark as a useful ministry partner. So what does Mark have to do with self-care? Well, Self-care, in the lingo to describe and promote it, has morphed into a worldview. Let me give you an example. From a self-care standpoint, a synopsis of John Mark's life might read like this. After deciding that mission life with Paul and Barnabas was unfulfilling, John Mark stepped away to reinvent himself. Even after major self-improvement, Paul refused to acknowledge Mark. So, Mark accompanied Barnabas, who validated his worth. Mark eventually teamed up with the Apostle Peter, who gave Mark a voice. Eventually, when Paul evolved from his toxicity, he and Mark reconciled, albeit with the parameters Mark determined. Front and center in self-care ideology is self. A Christian worldview puts Christ at the center and God's word is preeminent. Here are some of the fundamentals of a Christian worldview that stand in stark contrast to the self-care worldview. Before a holy, sinless, without fault God, we are all toxic. The Bible says all our righteousness, that is the best we can do, is like filth before God, Isaiah 64 verse 6. We're all in the same sinful boat, desperately in need of a Savior, which God graciously provided. In God's kingdom, the greatest are those who serve and deny self. Jesus said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verses 25 to 30. Jesus could have had a very different life. If he was all about living his best life, he would have lived in luxury and made sure to surround himself with people who did what he wanted. Judas wouldn't have made the cut. It wouldn't have been on Jesus' radar or in his best interest to submit to dying the gruesome death he died. But Jesus wasn't focused on self. He left heaven to come to earth for our sake. He kept the law we couldn't keep to be the ransom for our sin. He died in our place in order that we might be with him eternally in heaven. Nothing about Jesus' life or ministry was self-centered. In the Christian church, me and my work is a non-issue. The Apostle Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 8. His point, there aren't any superstars in God's kingdom. Don't consider who did what, because ultimately any success from our kingdom efforts is the work of God. Jesus served. We serve. We're all doing our part. It isn't more prestigious to be the pastor or to be the missionary or, in my case, the podcaster. The pastor depends on the secretary, and the secretary depends on the worship leaders and the people who run the committees to communicate information. I depend on an editor, a reviewer, and a producer. We are a body with many members, and we are all serving each other in Christ. None of us is more important than anyone else. It's not about us. Humility, then, and not pride, is the mark of a child of God. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Paul put it this way, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Nothing not one thing. Remove self. Consider others' perspectives and needs. This, my friends, is in stark contrast to the self-care message. Mark wrote this, That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Mark 4, verses 35 and 36. Right now you may be saying, hold up, how was Jesus considering the needs of the crowd? When Jesus left, it wasn't about chillaxing or carving out me time. Just a few chapters before this, Mark reported that the whole town came to Simon Peter's door to listen to Jesus. Many were healed. And very early the next morning, Jesus slipped away to pray. When his disciples found him, he told them they needed to move on because others needed to hear his message. Another time, the Apostle John reported that after Jesus miraculously fed the people, they wanted to seize Jesus by force and make him their king, John six fifteen, They wanted a provider king to keep them physically fed, not a spiritual king who would free them from the devil, the world, and their sinful flesh. Because of this, he left the people. If we were to keep reading this account in Mark, we'd realize Jesus was headed across the lake to drive the demons out of a man who would become his missionary to that Gentile area. His leaving showed he was in tune to the Father's will. In another place in Scripture, Jesus took a route most Jews would avoid in order to meet a woman at a well who would bring a whole town to Jesus, John 4. So this was not about leaving the crowd as much as it was about Jesus following his father's orders. With that understanding, let's go back to the account in Mark. There were other also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown?" He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Mark 4, verses 36-41 to The disciples' question, who is this, is the question we'll need to answer too. It will determine how or if we'll embrace a Christian worldview that lets the Bible shape our thinking. Is the God of the Bible a sovereign God above all things in heaven and on earth? Genesis 1, Psalm 24, 1, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Is he the author of the Bible? John 1. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Is he intimately involved in the lives of those who love him? Deuteronomy 31, 6-8, Isaiah 49, 16, Romans 8, 28. Or is he like Baal, whose prophets danced and yelled and cut themselves in an effort to get his attention to no avail? 1 Kings 18, 26-29. Was Jesus the perfect Son of God, as the Gospels record? Did his death mean anything, or was he just another prophet who met an untimely death? If we believe the Genesis account, that the world was created by God, and that shortly after their creation, Adam and Eve plunged the world into sin, and if we believe what God said to Adam and Eve, that he would take care of it so they didn't have to live in sin for eternity, then we are led to God's word for answers. What did sin do to the souls of men? What did God do about it? Where is God now? The Old Testament is the account of God being intimately involved in his people's lives. It contains promises of a solution to sin and prophecies foreshadowing how God would fulfill those promises. These prophecies offered signs to people so they would know the coming Messiah when he came. The New Testament contains the four gospels, giving an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, proof that he was the Messiah. The New Testament letters further explain God's plan for salvation, the way we get to heaven, and God's relationship with us. A Christian worldview requires us to hold worldly philosophies up to the Bible to see if they are in line with God's word. Does this make you uncomfortable? Do you cringe at some of the things in the Bible and ask, God, do you really expect me to believe that? Are you struggling to let God be God and rule in your heart? The world tells us to be self-absorbed and motivated by our needs, wants, and pleasures. God's rule in our hearts is quieting our sinful nature and not going the way of the world, but letting God be the first and final authority. God's first command is easy enough to understand you shall have no other gods. In simple language, God first. And here's the thing. God's ways aren't difficult. They aren't restrictive or chauvinistic. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30. God's way offers us rest. If you've ever been caught doing something you weren't supposed to do, you understand the energy guilt consumes. There's a fine to pay or a mess to fix or relationships to rebuild. Going our own way isn't as restful as we sometimes think, but going the speed limit is and walking away from the gossip so you don't get in the middle of nonsense and drama is, and living with integrity so you don't have neighbors knocking on your door asking you to explain yourself is too. God invites us to yoke ourselves to him and learn from him. We aren't so familiar with yokes. They are the wooden frame that holds two oxen together. The yoke keeps the two in step so that one isn't way ahead while the other is way behind. The King of Kings invites us to walk beside him, not 100 feet behind his bodyguards or within camera range. Take my yoke upon you in today's language is this. Hey, come here, right here by me. Unlike a superstar or world leader or sports enigma who has status that makes him or her unavailable to 99% of us, Jesus calls each of us by name. He walks at our pace. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and he wants to walk with me and you. His invitation? Learn from me. Do you want to hold hands with the King of Kings? Or do you want to try to fill up by watching cute animal videos? It doesn't seem like much of a choice, does it?